This is Jennifer Gonzalez welcoming you to episode 78 of the Cult of Pedagogy podcast. In this episode, we're going to unpack four common misconceptions about culturally responsive teaching. The term culturally responsive teaching has been around for decades, but it seems to have gotten more attention in recent years. That's good news. With our classrooms growing more diverse every year, teachers should be more interested in how they can best teach students who come from different backgrounds. The not so good news is that in some cases, teachers think they're practicing culturally responsive teaching, when in fact, they're kind of not, or at least they're not quite there. And that means students who might really thrive under different conditions are surviving at best. We all want to do better for these students, but how to do it still hasn't become common knowledge. To move the needle forward a bit more, I invited Zaretta Hammond onto the podcast. I have admired Zaretta's work for a few years now. She's the author of the 2015 book, Culturally Responsive Teaching and the Brain. In the book, she provides a neuroscience-based teaching framework that goes beyond surface changes to really build cognitive capacity in our students from diverse backgrounds. When I read it, I realized that true culturally responsive teaching definitely isn't as simple as I thought it was. It's much more holistic. In fact, in most cases, it wouldn't even look culturally responsive to an outside observer. And that tendency to oversimplify is part of the problem. In this episode, Zaretta and I look carefully at four common misconceptions some educators have about culturally responsive teaching. Regardless of where you are in your own understanding of this subject, this conversation should help you refine it a bit more. When you're done, I would encourage you to come over to the site, share your thoughts in the comments, and explore some of Zaretta's other resources. Because although this episode will help you understand what culturally responsive teaching is not, there's plenty more to learn about what it is. So come over to Cult of Pedagogy, click on podcast, then go to episode 78, and you'll find a summary of our conversation, a full transcript, and links to other resources. Before we get started, I'd like to thank Raymond Geddes for sponsoring this episode. For over 90 years, this third-generation, family-owned business has been making fun and affordable school supplies, stationery, and toys that students love. Whether you're looking for merchandise for your student-run store, new fundraising ideas, or awesome rewards for your classroom treasure chest, Raymond Geddes has what you need from school supplies, fidgets, scented pens, non-candy Halloween treats, and much more. Visit cultofpedagogy.com slash Geddes, G-E-D-D-E-S, and use code COP20 when you check out to get free shipping and 20% off your first order. I also want to thank you for the reviews you've given this podcast on iTunes. These reviews tell other teachers that it's worth their time to download and listen. So if you think more teachers would benefit from what I'm dishing out here, head over to iTunes and tell them about it. Thanks so much. Okay, here is my interview with Zaretta Hammond. I would like to welcome Zaretta Hammond to the podcast. Welcome. Thank you. 
And it's, it's strange that you're on here for the first time because we've sort of worked together several times in the past. I reviewed your book a couple of years ago and you wrote a guest post for me, but I have not actually had you on the podcast. So I'm really excited that this is a good time for it, I think. Yeah, I think so too. And I'm glad to, that we were able to do this. Yeah. So just um, tell tell the listeners a little bit about who you are, what your background is, the, what's, what is the work that you've been doing lately? Yeah, I am uh, a teacher by, you know, my initial training. I was a, a composition teacher when I was in the classroom. So I taught expository writing at the middle school, high school and community college levels. And that was back in the day. Um, I then transitioned out of the classroom to become a teacher educator, to literally work shoulder to shoulder with teachers as they were thinking about their practice around literacy and equity. So literacy training, you know, is my background, helping teachers make sure that kids are reading on grade level, um, that kind of thing. And that's kind of what transitioned me into really writing more about culturally responsive practices, because that's what I was doing in the classroom to get um, results. And I was sharing with teachers how they can integrate that into their um, subject areas. So currently what I do, um, I work with schools that want to go deep and really change their practice. So we use an inquiry method and really look at how they can implement successfully culturally responsive practices. Got it. And you also wrote a book a couple of years ago now about culturally responsive teaching, which I think it's such a great book because you actually intersect the idea of culturally responsive teaching with neuroscience. Yeah. And the intersection, I think, was necessary because there was, you know, um, a lot of misconception about what culturally responsive teaching uh, is. You know, back then when I started this work some, you know, 20 years ago and even now, there are still misconceptions of what it is. So I'm excited that we'll get to talk about that. But I think the neuroscience helps people understand why it works, right. that it's not just magic. Yeah. <laughs> It's, um, it's, it seems like in this past year, I've seen more and more uh, uses of the term culturally responsive teaching. And a lot of the places where I'm seeing it, it seems to be a little off from what it really should be and if it's going to actually work. So maybe we should start with just sort of your definition of what is culturally responsive teaching and what, what is the issue that you're seeing out there in terms of misconceptions? Yeah. And, and, and equally, I'd love for you to share kind of what you've been seeing okay. that leads you to believe it's off so that we can, we can kind of unpack some of that. But here's culturally responsive teaching. It is how do we build the capacity of diverse students to um, have intellectual confidence and grow their brain power. And what that means is the focus of culturally responsive teaching is raising academic success. That's what Gloria Letts and Billings had at the center of um, her work when she actually coined the term and started that bringing various strands of educational theory and practice together. So culturally responsive teaching is not just about building relationships or some of the other things we're going to get into, but really is about improving the academic achievement of students. I think the misconceptions right. come in how 
it actually does that. Um, so, you know, people keeping achievement at the center is, I think, really the key thing. Okay. Let, let's take a quick look at the term diverse, too. I, I remember you and I kind of wrestled for a while with even what to title certain mm-hmm. blog posts because there's a strong reaction to the term at risk because it's a it's built on a deficit. And I know that when I've put out some links to your your earlier post about diverse students, I get pushed back about that also because people say, what do you, what do you mean mm-hmm. diverse? What does that mean exactly? It's hard to, especially in something like a tweet, it's hard to come up with quick language to really communicate what you mean by diverse students. So could you unpack that a little bit? Yeah, I think that's a really good point. Um, And I use the word diverse simply because a lot of school districts are using Mm -hmm. it, not because I'm wedded to the word. So again, trying to make sure that people understand who we're talking about because this is who their district, how their district is labeling it. Here's the reality. We are in a majority minority school district, uh, you know, public education around the United States. So whether you're using the word minority, you're using diverse, we're talking about non-white students being the majority in most public schools. So uh, diverse is uh, really an attempt to talk about English language learners, immigrant students, students of color, be they African-American, Latino, Pacific Islander, Asian, Usually, we are talking about um, lower performing students, for what better or right. worse. Um, so it ha- it, it's a loaded term, mm-hmm. but it's one folks are using to really talk about the, the students that they're most worried about when they look at their data because they're disproportionately at the bottom of the uh, achievement you know, right. curve. Would it be fair to say that students of color and other students who fit the description that you're giving, who have been successful in traditional schools, um, have been successful sort of despite the fact maybe that those teachers are not teaching culturally in culturally responsive ways or that their families have been already assimilated into sort of mainstream culture in such a way that they've just adapted? to that? Does that make sense? That- I, here's the thing. It does. And here's the thing that I think is really important. There's, there's nothing magical about culturally responsive teaching. It's how do you optimize learning? Mm-hmm. When I'm learning in a way that's congruent with how I learn mm-hmm. at home, I then just continue the same system. And schools are all, all instruction is culturally responsive. The question is to whose culture is it responding? Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. So, yep. right? And so the idea is students learn various systems, just like they learn another language. And for some students, despite the uh, atmosphere in the classroom, because culturally responsive teaching also has an element around relationships that's really an integral part of the instructional piece. And being able to help people kind of really understand how that works becomes really important. Um, so, yeah, being able to understand that successful students of color have been able to do that by 
you know, being uh, bicultural in many right, ways, right. right? Being able to navigate back and forth. So in many ways it is despite that. And sometimes despite having a hostile uh, environment, having lowered expectations, um, having folks who don't recognize their genius or even their ways of processing information. I'm, I'm, I brought all of that up because I know the types of pushback that I tend to get whenever I put something out into the world that says, maybe you should adjust your approach for you know diverse students, the main pushback sometimes I'll get is, you know, what about all the kids or why should I have to change? Why don't they adapt to the way I teach? And so, or they'll hold up the one example of a, of a student of color. It's like, well, this student was able to succeed with the way I teach. Why can't, you know, all of the rest of the students do the same thing? And so I wanted to make sure that I, I kept that objection in this conversation so that, you know, we sure. recognize, and it may come up again later, but that's, I, I'm hoping that the people who have those objections are listening right now and are, are going to open up to what you have to share, because I think ultimately what we want is for all of our kids to succeed. Not that, not that we're just going to dig our heels in and say, well, they're just going to have to figure it out. Absolutely. And I think that's why I brought in the neuroscience, because when we understand what's going on in the brain in terms of creating the right conditions, then you want to be able to maximize, minimize the cortisol, stress hormones, maximize oxytocin, the bonding um, hormone that allows students to be in the right frame of mind. So the idea of a school looking at the data and seeing a disproportionate number of students of color at the bottom means that there's something has to change. It's not the students usually right. that have to change. The idea of students being at the lower end, particularly students of color, than English learners, poor students, mm -hmm. that you're going to have to be able to think about how you get students to um, move out of the, the, that fight or flight um, state so that they are in this relaxed openness for learning. Yeah. So, you know, that, it, that data really is uh, a symptom that teachers should be reading. Yes. And, and really, you know, if we're professionals, then we need to meet our students wherever they are and do whatever we can do to, to set, set them up for success. So. Absolutely. That's a, here's the thing I want to say with, about that, uh, uh, Jim, yeah. it is a, that's a deficit orientation mm -hmm. and uh, around assimilation. If you think your student has to adjust mm -hmm. to you. Right. When we understand how the brain works, we understand that idea of what it means to meet the student where they are and take them to this next level. That's what a good teacher is able to do. So the degree to which you're able to kind of anchor in what the student already knows and twist and take them up to a new level is what good teaching is all about. So the degree to which we're not just, you know, going to teach in one particular cultural way and then expect students to kind of uh, um, assimilate. And here's the reason why I think that's so important. We have inequity by design in schools. So schools were not set up 
to actually maximize the capacity right. of students of color. That's just our historical you know, foundation as America. So what we're trying to do in many ways is kind of reverse that mm -hmm. trend. We're, that's a systems piece. So this is why culturally responsive teaching is not just kind of a, some set of magical strategies. It really is a holistic system-based process where we have to look at how are we creating a less hostile environment? How are we leveraging the ways and the students know and the bodies of knowledge that they come in with? You know that what you were just saying about how schools used to be, it, it reminds me of you know my sort of first intro to education class. And they, they taught us that, that schools used to be designed, and they use the phrase sort and separate, that it used to be to just identify the kids who were going to be successful, get them on the track, and then just sort of let everybody else go. Just to sort of... Yeah. I, I would love if it was used to be, well, yeah. <laughs> but the reality yeah. is... That with inequity is still right. doing its job. It is it is really for schools to be equity minded, they have to be diligent and they really have to focus on this. So the idea of helping students, particularly this idea of dependent learners, and this is what I write about in my book, that this is not just about um, helping students of color because they're students of color. We're helping them because they, we have bred dependent learners in our mm -hmm. classrooms, and that's been part of the inequity by design. It wasn't just sort, it was actually not teach them to read well, right? It was actually being able to um, underdevelop the cognitive resources of students of color. And now what we're being asked to do, a lot of teachers are asked to do the opposite. So if students come to them already behind in grade level, they don't know how to accelerate that. Culturally responsive teaching is about accelerating students' learning. And here's the thing I want to point out. Only the learner learns. So if you don't have the learner feeling confident in their intellectual mm -hmm. ability and being able to leverage what he or she already knows in terms of taking in the content, and making it usable knowledge, then you're not gonna be able to accelerate that learning. So this is not just about you know, being, being uh, magnanimous with students of color or somehow you know, we need to, to support them because there were inequities in the past. This is about every learner being able to accelerate their capacity. Right. right. So we have talked ahead of time and we decided we're gonna sort of look at four misconceptions that people have about culturally responsive teaching. Mm -hmm. So if you're ready, let's, let's get into the first misconception. Yeah. The first misconception is a confusion between multicultural education, social justice education, and uh, culturally responsive teaching. I think we have a tendency to use them interchangeably and they are not interchangeable. Okay. So multicultural education is uh, what we usually see in schools. This is the celebration of diversity, um, wanting to make sure that there's harmony across difference. And what's important to understand there is while those are really noble things and critical to a high functioning classroom and school climate, 
it doesn't have anything to do with learning capacity. Whereas culturally responsive teaching is about building the learning capacity of the individual student. And that means that there is a focus on leveraging the affective and the cognitive scaffolding that students bring and being able to kind of leverage that. Um, social justice is about kind of building a lens for the student, really being able to look at the world and seeing where things aren't fair or where, you know, injustice um, exists. What's important to understand about culturally responsive teaching and how it's different from multicultural and social justice education is those first two don't have anything to do with learning. Right. So you can have a student have a critical lens, but if he's, if he's reading three grade levels behind, it's not going to do much to accelerate right. that. So culturally responsive right. teaching, it really is about instruction at the core. This is one of the things that I actually um, contacted you about uh, because there, there seems to be a push right now in decorating your cr classroom in such a way that uh, would would cause a teacher to believe that they are teaching in a culturally responsive way and uh, decorating Absolutely. with African patterns around the room and that sort of thing, that this is supposed to be creating a more welcoming environment for diverse students. And there, there was pushback and a lot of kerfluffle about it. Um, and I thought it'd be a really good opportunity to explain why that doesn't really equate to culturally responsive teaching here let me and uh, let me try to to kind of unpack this a bit because you're absolutely right and i think it's an important piece where the neuroscience comes in because if we actually look at the logic of this we can better understand why it's not helpful in terms of accelerating learning if that's at the core of culturally responsive teaching there is something then that says that if I decorate my classroom with African patterns, somehow the student will feel more excited, connected, and then what? They're, that the two grade levels behind they are in reading will disappear? So that still does not help the student accelerate learning. It still doesn't leverage culture as a cognitive scaffold. Right. So there's not a lot of relationship between what we call surface culture, the observable things about culture, um, you know, what you eat, what you read, how you dress. Those are what we call surface mm -hmm. culture and the relationship between learning. And this is where the confusion is. That would be in the multicultural right. mm -hmm. realm. So decorating your classroom, that's more multiculturalism, especially if you're decorating it to have a little bit of everybody's right. culture. I call that the it's a small world right. approach. And again, right. if you think about it, that's more of the social you know, uh, mm -hmm. harmony, getting along across difference, everybody feeling included. That does not have anything to do with instruction. And there is a the, there's an attempt to make culturally responsive teaching, you know, kind of easy to do. And sometimes that's the thing that we see right. happen. So so if a teacher is is 
and the thing is, you can sort of see where this has come from because the the push toward multicultural education has been around since. I mean, I'm thinking in, since the '70s. I'm remembering being in school. Uh -huh. um, if a teacher's sort of heading down that path and is being told that's not the right thing to do, what should that teacher be doing instead? Which I know is a huge question. There's a bunch of things, but maybe just give one example of the type of thing that would make a much bigger difference. Yeah, I think it, it, it does require more time for us to unpack because this is the biggest challenge. Culturally responsive teaching is yeah. not plug and play. This is not a list of student behaviors or magical strategies I could give you. That's another misconception. If we just have the right strategies, then we could right. do culturally responsive teaching. Culturally responsive teaching is how do you show up so that you're building a relationship with the student? How are you having a high trust, low stress environment? And the cultural aspect to bring in has to do with shallow culture, right? Not surface culture. In my book, I talk about the three levels of culture. And the shallow culture is intermediate. It's that right below the surface. If I stay in a place three weeks, I see the mm -hmm. unspoken rules of how close do you stand to a person? What kind of eye contact do you make? What kind of communication patterns tell you we're in sync, right? There are things that we can do to build trust. What I suggest teachers do is learn more about collectivism and bring more elements of collectivism as the cultural orientation into the classroom. So right now, most schools are centered around an individualistic uh, orientation, right? Keep your eyes in your own work, right? Pull yourself up by the bootstrap. Whereas collectivism is, I am because we are. It's interdependency. And it doesn't mean that people just, you know, students of color and other diverse students like to be in a group all the time. What it means is the orientation is toward being part of the group and succeeding for the group so that even my individual effort is going to, mm. to reflect that. So it's not so much what's on the walls, it's how you interact. You can have stuff on the walls, but know that that's not gonna actually be the determining factor whether a student actually feels connected or have a sense of belonging in the classroom. But I think bringing in more collectivist practices, understanding what that is, um, is going to be kind of the, the path. Another misconception is we have to talk about implicit bias all the time, right? So the degree to which culturally responsive teaching is either swings between this kind of it's a small world multiculturalism mm -hmm. or we always have to be having hard conversations about implicit bias. And neither of those get you to instruction. That's the biggest problem. So teachers just keep doing instruction the way they've done it. And that's the place where you actually want to leverage students' collectivism, their ability to process information in a different way. And if you don't understand those areas, then all of this other stuff may seem like it's not working. So then teachers say, culturally responsive teaching doesn't, doesn't work. work. They've oversimplified yeah. it. Yeah. Can you can you give me an example? Because um, I know that one of the things I'm going to make sure I do in the blog post that I put together for this is that I link people to my review of your book because you really lay it out in much more detail there what teachers should be doing. But could you give an example of a, maybe a, a typical way that a teacher might teach something and then how would that be changed so that it's a more collective way of teaching it that that appeals to that sense of collectivism? 
Yeah, I think those are, that's hard in five minutes. (laughs) Um, Because what I share with teachers is it's not so much that you're teaching in a collectivist way, but when we get to instruction, there are four um, cultural learning tools that I share with teachers and show them how to utilize. So one is puzzles and patterns. Mm -hmm. Another is talk and wordplay. So how do you incorporate puzzles and patterns into processing information when students are taking on a new lesson or a new unit? So sometimes this is through gamification. Mm -hmm. Now, what's really important about that is you're not mentioning anything to do with race or ethnicity or anything. It's you're talking brain to brain so that the brain recognizes, oh, in a collectivist culture, I actually am learning by doing. And I might be talking to my partner. Vygotsky talks about social cultural learning theory, which means people learn better when they talk to each other about what they're doing. And being able to set that up, it doesn't always have to be in a group setting. It could be partners playing a game together. That's an educational game. And I show teachers how to make these games so that they're leveraging the puzzle and patterns as a way that the brain talks to and processes information and that's utilized in a collectivist culture. Because most collectivist cultures have a strong oral tradition. Right. That oral tradition is leveraged because students are coming with that already. So, you know, that's quick and dirty, but it's, again, a way that I think as teachers even can start to bring in more gamification, recognizing that's actually going to be more consistent with collectivist information processing. Right. I want to I want to underscore what I hear you saying, too, is that because I know that you resist giving something that's just like one simple strategy because it's really important that teachers have a more kind of comprehensive understanding of what culturally responsive teaching is and not just say, oh, just do this from now on. So that was just one example of the kind of thing that might be a shift. Yeah, I think being able to think about holistically how you build a different relationship with students so that you can build trust, how do you actually leverage the fact that the student is the only one who learns, only the learner learns, restoring that natural confidence by leveraging collectivism. And there are you know, various parts to that in terms of understanding what goes into it. And that's one of the things that I try to, to share with teachers when I do professional development with them so that they then look at their own practice. So it is, it's really a challenge to try to say this is it in a nutshell, but I do see that's what's happening. And teachers need to interrogate their practice a little more robustly because it's not an off the shelf program. It's not two or three strategies because you'll go back to doing what you've been doing. And that sends the signal to students that my ways of knowing and learning are not honored. And so it's less about the African print on the wall Mm -hmm. and more about how can you learn about how students are processing information in a more collectivist way. I'm gonna take a quick break to tell you about our other sponsor, Kids Discover. Kids Discover's mission is to give every classroom science and social studies material they can get truly excited about. 
Available in both print and digital formats, Kids Discover's library is made up of the most commonly taught subjects for elementary and middle school students. Kids Discover's glossy print titles are packed with iconic photography, original illustration, and digestible facts. And their digital library, Kids Discover Online, offers multiple reading levels, an assessment builder, and single sign-on with Google and Clever. This back-to-school season, they're excited to announce 25 brand new social studies titles, including World's Early People, American Government, and 13 Colonies. You can check out all of their new titles today. Just go to cultofpedagogy.com slash kidsdiscover. Okay, let's continue our conversation with Zaretta. So the first two misconceptions we covered right now is that there's a confusion between culturally responsive teaching and multicultural and social, social justice education. That was one. Number two uh -huh. has to do with putting maybe too much focus on tackling implicit bias. Not that that's not an important piece of it, but there seems to be too much emphasis to swing in that direction. Um, and what is the, what's the third misconception? Here's the last thing I'll say about mis misconception number two. You sure. do need to, at some point, get to implicit bias. It's just not the starting point. If you Got start it. there, you can't pivot to instruction. Whereas when you gotcha. understand inequity by design, you can actually talk about instruction, but also come back to talk about microaggressions. So the mm -hmm. sequencing of that is really important. The third one is this thing that we kind of touched on, which is CRT is about raising the self-esteem of students of color or just having a good relationship with them. So if I work on, you know, being friendly with them and having this good relationship, that's going to change their learning ability. And so there's a, a big uh, effort afoot in terms of social emotional learning programs. People are developing these, they're help, trying to help students gain self-regulation, but also build positive relationships with students. Restorative circles are mm -hmm. happening as a way of getting these positive relationships. But here's what schools are finding that do surveys and find after a few years of this kind of work that their um, positive climate has gone up. Satisfaction survey among uh, adults as well as kids is really high but the achievement doesn't move. Got it, yep. It's relationship setting is just the first stage. You're doing that because part of culturally responsive teaching is helping the learner get into his zone of proximal development, stay there, and be able to process the information. And for students who have been marginalized and not feel welcome, that this, the brain tells us they may be in more of kind of the stress area and you're, you're wanting to help them. So that relationship becomes important because you want them to actually do the heavy lifting of the cognitive work. But that's not gonna happen if you can't get the student to be in a trusting relationship. So trusting relationship is just one part and not the part. Mm -hmm. It is the on-ramp to the kind of cognitive high-level problem solving and higher order thinking we want students to do. So CRT with the cultural learning tools allows students to do that, build their capacity. But those relationships are simply the on-ramp. 
I see a lot of people just doing the relationship. Right. So piece. the kids feel they feel, you know, that, that it's a safe space and they feel that their teacher sort of sees them for who they are and everything sort of all the groundwork has been laid. But then cognitively, they're still not necessarily um, they're not achieving because of the, the way that the instruction is being delivered. That's right. And the teacher doesn't know how to make the instruction more culturally responsive. And so, again, what I try to teach people is there are principles of how to make instruction more responsive and that when you're able to do that, it doesn't matter who the students are that walk across your path so that across your you know, classroom door, you will always be able to make your lesson and your instruction more responsive. If I were just simply to give people strategies, there's no one size fits all strategy. And here's the thing that I think is most important, and it goes to the, the folks that give you pushback in terms of, um, isn't this good for all students or what about all students? Mm -hmm. What we know is this kind of teaching is good for all brains. So what you're doing to actually reach your lowest performing students is going to be good for your highest performing students. And it's actually going to allow you to differentiate more. A lot of teachers haven't kind of perfected the ability to differentiate. So they're right. teaching to the middle, right? Mm -hmm. Which leaves the lower performing students kind of um, down at the bottom and the higher performing students bored at the top. Yeah. When you're teaching in a more culturally responsive way, you'll be able to actually have more differentiation in the classroom. Um, and therefore it meets everybody's needs. But it is a process. So when I work with schools, I do an inquiry process. We take a year, we do lesson study, we do inquiry, we're actually trying things, collecting data, coming back and talking about it. Because it's not just kind of a PD, you know, here's some strategies, go try them. Mm -hmm. It is much more complicated to that. And I feel like one of our biggest challenges is we've, again, oversimplified and reduced it to um, you know, these misconceptions. Well, and that leads us into the fourth misconception, which at this point we've kind of covered it, but do you uh -huh. have anything? Let's, let's just review it. <laughs> yeah. I think that's, again, the fourth, fourth misconception is having the right strategies. And I do see that we, we need to be able to create the spaces for teachers to take more of an inquiry stance to say, who are my students? right? Grade level, background, all of these things. Who am I? What are my teaching strengths? What are the instructional strategies I know how to use? And be able to craft those in a way that it works for the students and that the teacher can actually see um, progress. One of the things that I ask teachers to do, if you want to talk about a strategy, is to bring formative assessment in. Kids don't get enough feedback where they can become the leaders of their own learning. Mm -hmm. So teaching them how to do that is critical. Being able to create the structures in your classroom over strategy that allows students to actually say, oh, I have opportunity for conferencing. I have an opportunity to get feedback. I actually mm -hmm. have an opportunity to meet with a few other of my peers where we're actually doing some type of um, review of our lesson, right? How did that go? We're tracking our data. So that's a structure. 
versus a strategy. And if those structures aren't in place, the student doesn't know where he is. The student actually can't take control of his or her own learning. So when a teacher is listening to all of this, what we've what we've told them for the most part is what what not to do. And so I'm going to make sure that they that they see your your book and um how how if they wanted to learn more from you, how would they be able to find you online? Yeah, they can go to my website uh ready for rigor and that's um ready number four, rigor, altogether.com. It's, uh, that's usually where I have my blog. It's undergoing a little change right now. So I haven't updated my blog for a while, but changes are coming. But there's still a place where they can um, actually uh, sign up for my newsletter. And that comes out, the, the fall edition will be coming out in September. And they'll know kind of what's going on and, um, upcoming trainings. I do webinars. There are a variety of ways to get connected with me so that they can learn more. Um, Yeah, I think that's the the easiest thing. If they want to get a copy of the chart that I referenced before in terms of the differences between uh, multicultural, social justice, and culturally responsive, there's a quick and easy way for them to do that. And it will also put them on my mailing list. And that is if they just text the number 44222, again, just text to 44222 and type in the message ready for rigor, all together, no spaces, lowercase, uh, and then they'll get a prompt and they can go from there. And that'll send them to a place where they can basically get the download and then get right on your mailing list too. Absolutely. And, you know, I'll have a new book, uh, book study guide coming out. Um, I'm doing a series of videos that go with that because I think some of the concepts are still new to folks. So I'm really excited about supporting teachers to build their capacity around culturally responsive practices. I really, I appreciate the work you're doing so much. Thank you so much, too, for for coming on here and exploring some of these issues with us. Oh, well, thank you for all you do in terms of creating the platform. I appreciate it. And like you said, we'll we'll continue to talk um, because I think you're right. I think this this is a really important issue and it's so multi-layered that, um, you know, I'm really wanting teachers to to build their understanding and then to, you know, commit to building their practice. So let's definitely continue to to think about ways that we can collaborate on getting that done. For links to all the resources mentioned in this episode, including links to Zaretta's resources, visit cultofpedagogy.com slash pod and click on episode 78. To get weekly updates on all my newest blog posts, podcast episodes, and products, sign up for my mailing list at cultofpedagogy.com slash subscribe. Thanks so much for listening and have a great day. This podcast is a proud member of the Education Podcast Network. Podcasts for educators, podcasts by educators. To learn more, visit edupodcastnetwork.com.